You're listening to the IHOP KC Family Connect podcast. In these 30-minute family conversations, fueled by the Word of God, the beauty of Jesus, and His glorious return, we will explore the narratives the Lord is weaving in the story of the global body of Christ as we digest what the Lord is saying to the church today. Well, hello and welcome. My name is David Slyker. I'm the president of the International House of Prayer University. It's great to be here with you again, the International House of Prayer podcast. I'm here with Isaac Bennett, Hello. the lead pastor of the Forerunner Church, which serves our, you know, it's a pastoral ministry that serves our spiritual family. Dana Kendler, the uh, prayer director at the International House of Prayer University with her husband, Matt. They help train in prayer. They get our students praying. They get our interns praying. It's, it's beautiful what they do, what they get to do. I love it. And the, the reason I love your title <laughs> is because it's the, it's the subject at hand today that I want to talk about this week, which is the glory of intercession. It's really, for us, it's the glory of our assignment and what it is that the Lord set us here to do. The Lord didn't set us here to primarily be messengers and writers and pastors and teachers and communicators. I, I, don't, I mean, I'll say this for me. He set me here primarily to be an intercessor. And, uh, and I've just come to find that invitation of the Lord to be so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm so thankful for it. The, um, the, I want to talk about it. Now, now I just want to frame this out before we talk about it. We're not talking today, and everybody knows this, but it's still important to say it. We're not talking today about intercession and the ministry of intercession, our assignment to intercede. Um, we're not talking about that as superior to other ministry assignments. My hope is that there are pastors out there. Their primary assignment is pastoring. They're not primarily called to be a vocational intercessor, a missionary intercessor. They're primarily called to pastor the flock that they've been entrusted with and given a stewardship of. And my hope is that they, they love their assignment the way that I love my assignment. I've met so many evangelists, particularly in YWAM, because we're, such, we're so knit by the Lord to YWAM as family. And so when you connect with YWAM over the years, you, you meet so many evangelists, they love their assignment. Mm-hmm. And because they so love the assignment the Lord's given them, they can so honor our assignment. They're not looking at us as inferior or feeling insecure about our prayer lives. You know, they're mostly going, wow, thank you for what you do. And they see the beauty of how they work together. And so I just always want to say that, that the evangelistic assignment, the pastoral assignment, the teaching assignment, the, the homeschool mom assignment, the business assignment, none of those are inferior to the intercessory missionary, the calling and assignment. It's just that I see the glory in ours and I see the glory in, in, in others. And, and I want to celebrate that. I want to talk about it a bit today and, uh, and just set what we do in the context of the hour, which again, I think you could do with everything. Paul sets pastoring in the context of the return of Jesus and the trouble that precedes it. Evangelism can be seen in light of the return of Jesus and the trouble that precedes it. And so our intercession, night and day intercession, it exists in a time frame and a context that matters to understand and properly value and appreciate what it is the Lord has initiated. And so that's what I'm thinking today. What do you think? Either of you, jump in. I'm not really setting you up as like I normally do. I'm normally very specific, but I wanted to not be specific at first and just give us room to 
to talk in general. Well, I think about. Um, I think day and night intercession makes the most sense in the hours of crisis. I think we've seen that in uh, church history. I think we've seen that in our own nation in the hour of crisis. I'm thinking about 9/11 and the tragedy that happened in New York City, and how suddenly, within you know one day, all of these people that had never engaged in the place of prayer, maybe in any type of consistent way, are filling. You know, people are praying in churches and homes mm-hmm. and schools, and there's this surge of prayer um, in the hour of crisis. I think that's really important. I think the more crisis that the earth is touching, the greater the response of of believers or even nominal believers is going to be in the place of intercession. I think that's an important trend to make note of. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, in the same way that my primary assignment being intercession doesn't exempt me from evangelizing. My primary assignment as an intercessor doesn't exempt me from pastoring. We, we all do a lot of pastoring. Mm-hmm. And so we, we express the, the gifts, the assignments, the, the New Testament body life that we've engaged in. And in the same way, intercession is a gift to the pastors that are out there, the businessmen that are out there, the husbands, the fathers, the moms, the wives. The intercession is a gift. It might not be your primary assignment, but in the hour of mounting trouble and crisis and pressure, when you feel powerless in the face of where things are going and what's coming, it's such a powerful use of our time to mm-hmm. appeal to the Lord to break in. It's funny when you were introducing the subject, it just made me reflective back to when uh, Matt and I kind of said yes to this assignment, but it was very much, very, very, very much <laughs> knit to that context. Um, it was the understanding of what Jesus described in Matthew 24 preceding his return and the understanding of trouble that was coming and was beginning. And in that context, nothing made more sense than intercession, inserting ourselves into that place and even occupation. Agreed. Yeah, I'd say it even, um, you know, in terms of the fivefold ministry calling, I think there are two things that really transcend even the fivefold ministry of the apostolic, the prophetic, the pastoral, et cetera, et cetera. And that is actually the office of intercession, engaging in it, not spiritual office, but just the, the engagement in the place of intercession and New Testament discipleship. The Lord and Paul both call every believer to the place of prayer and to New Testament discipleship, and no one is exempt from that. You don't have to be a prophet but the Lord certainly puts an emphasis on praying, praying consistently, praying petitionary prayers that we see throughout, particularly the Psalms, um, making appeal to heaven, and then also making disciples. I mean, Matthew 28, mm-hmm. 18. So, I mean, those two things really are non-exempt. But what we're talking about here in terms of intercessory missionary that might be helpful for some folks is, is the full-time occupation of being an intercessory mm-hmm. Uh, giving yourself to intercessory missions, which is a term that we created and we coined back in the the 1990s before IHOP even began. Yeah, I think of, you know, the the glory of what we do isn't exclusive to that occupation. It can't be. You know, we've talked to our friend in St. Louis, Pastor Jim Stearns, about that many times, where he goes, you guys in what you do in Kansas City, you build your prayer culture primarily with full-time intercessors. That's their job. He goes, whereas I've got to build my prayer culture with full-time marketplace workers, full-time businessmen, 
um, their full-time occupation is something else, but they can they come they they cry out to God they pray they 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 come together to ask the Lord to move. The value isn't necessarily in the fact that we do it full time or somebody else does it, you know, after work. It doesn't make that less valuable. The value is in together, however it looks. And so let's just take a minute and talk about that. The, why did the Lord not just insist on intercession? Why does the Lord insist on corporate intercession amongst believers and ministries and churches? Like what for us, think about the last 20 years together. Why did the Lord insist on us showing up to the same room to pray the same prayers? There, there's not a lot of variation over 20 years, as I've heard. Right. We, we, we pray for Kansas City from the same prayers in the New Testament. Right. We do it together, and we have for the last 22 years. Why did the Lord insist on that? I mean, I think that's what he does in heaven. I mean, Jesus lives always to make intercession for us. So I think he invites the body of Christ um, to varying degrees, whether it be full-time occupationally or just in the spirit of it, right, to engage with his governance and his expression of authority. That's how he gets things done in the kingdom is through agreement and particularly corporate agreement. And when I think of the corporate agreement side, I think of Psalm 133. I mean, that's the go-to passage. Blessed are brethren when they dwell together in unity because there's a commanded blessing there. So I think, man, I think there's a lot uh, of different features to it, but those two things kind of shoot to my mind immediately. Yeah, I think of the first and second commandment. I mean, when we come to the word and the promises and the the very prayers that the New Testament offers, Jesus's prayers, those prayers, when we set our hearts before them, and then we do that over time, over and over and over and over. There's this transformation. I love that verse in the Psalms where we become that prayer. <laughs> and it actually transforms us and changes us. And so we begin to love Jesus way more and agree with him, have that agreement um, by praying the prayers. But then here we are together praying those same prayers. And we are so vastly different. And yet... In that process of the fire of transformation through intercession, we actually become so much more unified. It's that binding together. Our hearts actually deeply care about these things that we've poured over in prayer. And, you know, they've become alive in us. They've changed us. We, we care far more than we used to. And so there's this second commandment fulfillment through that place of intercession as well. And so in the genius of the Lord, what I'm hearing, it's the brilliance of his leadership. He accelerates the perfecting of the saints into maturity in his love. He accelerates that through corporate worship and corporate intercession. As we sing together and as we cry out to God together, if we're crying out from his word together, there's a grace from the Holy Spirit to knit our hearts and accelerate our growth together. So we're not um, maturing in different ways. We're actually maturing in the same direction. Yeah. I love the wisdom of that. That's beautiful. So now qu I'll ask another question. So now, so now in that, the, uh, that dynamic of what we do, you know, I was, I was thinking about it earlier today. The, the, when the early days, when we first started the house of prayer, there weren't a lot of expressions of what we do. Now there's two things. There's, there's this expression has matured, 
and people are, are really kind of, they've shifted how they feel about it. Um, and there's this, exp there's so many different expressions similar to this across the earth now, 10,000 plus at last count, according to somebody that tracks these things, that are expressions similar to this. And what that's done is it's, it's normalized something in the body of Christ, and I appreciate it, where people used to ask, you know, what's your ecclesiology? What's your theology of the church? And what, what are you guys? Are you guys a church? And what are you doing? And just all they, they were hung up on is what you're doing biblical and how does this relate to the church? And is it parachurch or is it local church? And we're just like, bro, we want to pray. <laughs> we want to pray and pastor people but, and disciple people. But, but uh, it seems like a lot of those conversations have gone away. I don't know about you guys. I haven't had those kinds of conversations with leaders in years, which is amazing. Now the conversations I have with leaders are, wow, we love what you guys are doing, and thank you for what you're doing. More and more, I'm encouraged by the conversations of, and we want to do it too. Now I'm convinced because of the wisdom of corporate intercession and corporate worship as the means to accelerate our, the joining of our hearts into what the Lord is doing and saying, uh, I believe the entire body of Christ is going to walk in a profound expression of intercession before it's all yeah. said and done, that, the, that his house will be a house of prayer before he returns. Not like us, I just mean more than valuing intercession as it's you know, expressed by others, but taking it personally mm -hmm. to contend in intercession for the Lord to move and be in our midst in powerful ways. So that's my thought. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty convinced the whole body of Christ is going to be engaging in a level of intercession we have not seen ever in church history before the coming of the Lord. I think the entire body of Christ is going to be um, not full-time and, and, and as their occupation. You know, I don't think pastors are going to stop leading churches and take up the ministry of intercession and pray 40 hours a week. I don't think that. But I think that the body of Christ, more and more, because of growing crisis, because of growing revelation, um, that the body of Christ is going to begin to enter into the place of intercession and prayer more and more. And, y I mean, there's just several places you see this in the Scripture. I think of Luke 18. You see it. Jesus commands in Luke 18, he says, pray always and don't lose heart. I mean, he's telling that to every believer, um, not just one particular group. I think of Revelation chapter 8. I think of Isaiah 62, set watchmen on the wall. So wait, slow down. Revelation 8, why do you think of that chapter? I think of Revelation 8 as the Lord's zeal in that hour to release justice in the, in the greatest hour of injustice that the earth will see uh, through the reign, through the terror of the Antichrist, demonic oppression. I mean, that's a whole other subject for another day. Why that hour is so unjust and why that hour is I believe, more unjust than any other season or generation in human history. Um, in that hour, the Lord is responding to the intercession of the saints on the earth. They're crying out for justice, which is also Luke 18. But it's also Revelation 6. It's the fifth seal. The fifth seal of God's judgment is the, the you know, awakening of the church to intercede in the face of unprecedented injustice and martyrdom. 
And so you, and, and which is interesting because we don't think of massive global intercession for justice as a judgment of the Lord. Right. But the fifth seal of Revelation presents as a judgment of the Lord an awakened global church crying out in unity with the church in heaven for justice related to martyrdom and unjust death, persecution, suffering. The church is suffering. And the church's answer to its own suffering at the hands of wicked men is to cry out in unison globally with the spirit of prayer for justice. I mean, it is a profound passage in Revelation 6. And you're, you're saying something quite dynamic, that that's the global expression of Luke 18 before the Lord returns. Luke 18, specifically, for those that aren't familiar with the passage, Luke 18, verses 7 and 8, night and day prayer for speedy justice, when it doesn't seem like the, uh, the unjust judges of the earth are going to respond, we give ourselves in faith to continual intercession with confidence that it will turn the heart of the just judge in heaven. The, uh, but what you're saying is Revelation 8, by the time we get to Revelation 8, the Lord has sparked, he, the, the church has filled the bowls of intercession in Revelation 5. Mm-hmm. The church, there's a new wave of the spirit of prayer and intercession for justice in Revelation 6. And now the Lord's answer in Revelation 8 Jesus is leading a global prayer movement of a unified church to actually shift the planet and the powers of the planet in the most significant way in human history. Right. Jesus is personally leading that prayer meeting to right. do it. Yeah, it's the, it's the hour of the corporate Moses, the intercession of Moses that releases the plagues. He, Moses would go and pray to God for the plagues to be released as the Hebrews were suffering the injustice of Egypt. And it's like this, imagine everyone is a Moses. I mean, that's kind of silly to imagine maybe, but I think it's to, to a degree it's true. Like everyone is a Moses and, and the spirit of prophecy is poured out. People are moving in signs, wonders, and miracles. And there's this anointed intercession across the nations of the earth. And I think that, that speaks to your point about the fifth seal, that it is a judgment upon darkness when God begins directly answering the prayers of his people for justice. And that's a terrifying, that's a horrible day to be the wicked. When you're the one oppressing the body of Christ and then God gives power to the victims, the victimization of your own wickedness, evil, and oppression, God gives power to them that he will answer them with divine power and intervention as they cry out, how long, O Lord? until you move. I mean, that's a bad day to be an evil man. (laughs) Well, you see a a prototype of that in Exodus, where they've been in bondage for 400 years, and then suddenly the collective groaning of the Israeli Mm -hmm. people. Yeah. It's that collective intercessory groan. I mean, when that spark begins in Exodus 3, by the time Exodus is over, that empire has been shattered. Right. Its armies have been shattered. All of history is transitioned in 10 of the most cataclysmic national level, empire level plagues the earth has ever seen. Right. And those 10 plagues, they really do change the course of history. But that's a localized prototype of what the book of Revelation says is going to happen on a global, global scale. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And, you know, by the time it gets to Exodus 15, which is the song of Moses, and then when you get to Revelation 15 in the New Testament, they're singing the song of Moses. 
They're singing the exact same thing. I mean, the Lord wants us to correlate the ministry of intercession with power and deliverance from unjust evil men all together. He wants us to see the continuity on this grand global scale. And this is where the body of Christ is headed. This is where we're all headed together. And, um, you know, man, it's just what an hour <laughs> in history to be alive and to have so much history in the body of Christ related to prayer and intercession. I mean, we've got so many men and women that have pioneered the place of intercession, travail. Um, I mean, we have political intercession of guys like Harry Truman. Um, I think of Reese Howells, who in the context of World War II is, is engaging in this ministry of intercession in such a profound way that it shifts the course of the war in ways that are measurable, you know, and I mean, what an hour to be alive. This is wild. Yeah, I love our assignment. That's why I wanted to talk about this today. I just wanted to get re-energized in our assignment for such a time as this. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think about the assignment of intercession being so connected to the groans that are in Jesus' heart. <laughs> you know, that's why it's a knowledge of God thing. And, right. and uh, that's why as the body of Christ matures, it is more and more coming into unity with those groans. And I think about, I loved how you talked about intercession recently, Isaac, just being in that, living in that tension. Mm -hmm. Like we are in, we are like straddling, so to speak, the, the present and the promise or the future and what the Lord has for us. And you said it's like doing the splits for 20 years, yeah. you know, like who does that, you yeah. know? But, but I think about Many times, you know, when you're in that tension and, and nobody likes that tension and, and, and truth be told, sometimes we don't even like it of one another. We just kind of want to talk each other out of it. But I always think about Jesus and I, I like to picture him seated upon the throne where he is right now and ask the question, Jesus, is your heart okay right now with things as they are? Are you okay with the present as it is? And, you know, you ask that for about, you know, a half a second, and the answer is so obvious. No. Mm -hmm. It brings me right back into that tension of going, then neither am I. Mm -hmm. And, yes, we can have joy, and, yes, we can have the, the indwelling spirit and all that the Lord gives to us in that sense, but we also live in a tension That's and right. a groan because he does. And so it really is part of our friendship with Jesus to share in that groan with him. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things, I think, to <laughs> rip off of, Dana, in, in what you just said. I, you made a pretty big statement at the beginning that we were like, yes, but I think that it would be worthwhile looking at. You said that it's a knowledge of God issue. Um, talk about that more. Well, I, I, I mean, I think about where does intercession come from? And is it from ourselves? No. <laughs> If it's from ourselves, then it, it means nothing. It has to be rooted in the word of God and the heart of God. And so when we're crying out for what the truth of God, the word of God proclaims and sets forth and promises or, or what the heart of Jesus is yearning for, I mean, that's a knowledge of God thing. And yeah. so we, we have to get into that space of the knowledge of his heart and the knowledge of his word to even pray the right prayers. Yeah. And that's what that's that magnet that God is attracted to. He agrees with himself, you yeah. know, and his word and his heart. I mean, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm looking here at Isaiah 2. I have it open um, on the table. 
and it starts out, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. This is the knowledge of God, peace here. Yahweh is declaring, I am not at peace mm -hmm. until Zion and Jerusalem are made of praise in the earth. Therefore, to lead to the revelation of the knowledge of God in verse 6, he says, I've set watchmen on your walls, and they won't hold their peace either. In other words, what the father wants, the son wants, and what the son wants, the bride wants. Yes. Therefore, what, is the what does the Lord do? How do we respond to that knowledge of God, the revelation of what the father wants? He says, I've set watchmen on your wall. Now, I've thought of the, this word set, and I know this isn't necessarily grammatically correct, so forgive me here, but I've thought of the word set. Typically, most people read it as a verb. I've set watchmen. I've put them there, um, thus says the Lord. But what if that, I, sometimes I think of that as like an adjective, that he has set watchmen, that set actually modifies the word watchmen, and they're, pe uh, they're people that God strategically, purposefully, sometimes sovereignly, raises up to stand in the gap, that place of tension mm -hmm. for his purposes so that the knowledge of God would be released in the earth. But I think it's even maybe stronger than that in that by uh, accepting the assignment to be set or to be a set watchman, I like what you're saying, by accepting that very assignment, they become a witness of the knowledge of God. In other words, in the hour of accusation against God and the accusation against the church and the accusation against one another, the, the, the set intercessor, the set watchman becomes a, a living declaration and, uh, and a part of the resume of Christ's worth to be our mm -hmm. king because we're declaring in faith, not by sight, what he's going to do. And to be an intercessor is to stand for what God said he is going to do in a way that transcends the circumstances that may seem to be writing a different resume or they might have a different testimony about, about how things are going to go. Mm -hmm. That's why when we feel powerless, we resort to activism or protest or, or raging or complaint or arguing. Right. There's different ways that we want to express our power when things aren't going the way that we want it to go, and we express that power in a way that actually flows from our conception of God and His worth. Right. I had a student ask me today, she goes, what does it mean that God is worthy? How, how, what does that mean? I go, for really, to, to get what that means, you have to go back a step and define worthy. Worthy means, should God have the power that He has over human affairs, mm. and worthy means can God act righteously or responsibly with that power when he intervenes? Should God and can God? Those are the, the, the two big issues of God's worth. When we say you are worthy, you are worthy to take the scroll. You are worthy, Jesus, to open its seals. Mm. What we're saying is you actually don't just deserve, you should. It is right that you have that power from the Father because you can use that power in a way that is right, that is lovely, that is beautiful, that it, the alternatives related to that power are really bleak. That's why John is weeping. Mm -hmm. But you are not just the best, you're the ultimate alternative. Of all the men and the powers of man that could bring about change on the earth, you're the only one actually worthy to bring about that change. Yeah. And the intercessor 
declares that worth night and day. The intercessor says, in essence, out of all the options to bring change on the planet, you don't like how men are treating women. You don't like how the white man is treating the black man. You don't like how the criminal, the oppressor, is treating the people that he's wounding. You don't like it. Out of all the options to bring change on the earth, as the intercessor, I appeal from the knowledge of God to the only one that's worthy to bring the necessary change. Mm -hmm. He's the only one that should have the power to do it, and he's the only one that will use that power in a way that's trustworthy. He's the only one. That's what the intercessor declares on a night and day basis. It's beautiful. I think so much of what um, we're talking about here if you're paying attention, you know, it, it, there's this correlation between the prophetic and intercession. I think they are absolutely in, inseparable uh, because the prophetic is, I mean, in the most succinct way in the New Testament, it's defined as the testimony of Jesus. But let's broaden it a little bit. Let's say it's the knowledge of God. We have to know, the intercessor must know what God wants mm-hmm. in order to ask in accordance with his will. And we know that God will accomplish all the things that are in his will. Therefore, the intercessor must have some prophetic wherewithal. They have to. They have to be able to at least identify it. You know, we call the Bible the prophetic scriptures because they testify of Christ. They tell of the future. Therefore, it is the most informative document to engage in the office and ministry of intercession. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can touch on this more um, in the second uh, podcast that we're going to do later. But this this. I, this revelation that prophetic and intercession is the banner that's written in the sky over Kansas City. Um, but just talk about anything that that sparks in both of you, this, this dance between prophetic and intercession. You cannot separate them. You cannot. Mm-hmm. If the intercessor does not have a prophetic spirit, they will not intercede. And if the prophet doesn't pray, then they are not being true to what the Lord is showing them. So, I mean, the two are just so connected together. So talk about anything that sparks in you. Yeah, I think the, uh, the way in which we've sustained night and day prayer for 22 years, if, if anyone wants to know the secret, the secret, how have, we, how have we done this and stayed with this? How have we prayed when we're bored? How have we prayed when we're, or, you know, whatever? And the secret is we have endeavored to pray from a place of intimacy, which means we know the God that we're talking to. We're talking to our dear friend Jesus. We're not just talking to the air. So we pray from intimacy with urgency for breakthrough. That's, and, and, and the, the breakthrough rarely comes, but, uh, but we're not hopeless as to whether or not it's going to come. We know that it's a matter of time. And so from intimacy with urgency, we recognize as a spiritual family the necessity of our role. We must have pastors in this city. We must have evangelists. We must have teachers of the word. We must. But we recognize as vital to the health of the body of Christ in this city and where this is going, we must have intercessors. We must, who will take their place and from a place of intimacy, heart connect, a moved heart, tears, that, that it's not, that it's personal to us, that our intercession is personal. And from that place of taking it personally, your point, because Jesus does. Mm-hmm. I take it personally because he takes it personally. Therefore, I have urgency. He cares that it change now. He sees the injustice today. We're not passive. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's, that's, that's one of the most prophetic acts of all in terms of the New Testament definition of prophetic. 
I am expressing the heart of God before men. I am ministering to his heart and expressing the things that he cares about in a, in a really personal way. I mean, that is so prophetic and intimate. Mm. Who represents? A pastor represents that which God cares about for the individual in their moment of difficulty. They're, they're expressing, there's a prophetic dimension to their pastoral ministry as they express the heart and the care of Jesus to keep that person in the game, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think in one sense, all effective ministry and every ministry assignment has to have a prophetic dimension as we represent God to man in a priestly way. I think it has to. I agree. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is to your question or not, but I'm just thinking about how when that intimacy is in place, how we have that urgency and we have that intimacy, and yet the timing, we don't know. There's something about that kind of prioritization of that, that when the breakthrough doesn't come, because as we know, it mostly hasn't in terms of our, you know, our little life experience thus far, <laughs> um, you know, the heart's preserved. And, and yet so is the urgency. It, it's like, I'm still pressing. I don't shrink back and I don't lose heart. And there's times we do, we get weary, but but there's that press with urgency, but yet there's this preservation by the intimacy. It, it really is that Hebrews 11 thing where faith, believing, and trusting. And so, because, and the reason I'm bringing this up, it actually is a pastoral reason, because I've seen it go the other way, where you're crying out for that breakthrough, then when it doesn't happen, there's a fence. There's, there, there can't even be bitterness, and, and I give up, and forget it, I... I gave myself to the place of intercession and nothing happened. And I think that it's really key that we, that we remember that order, that intimacy, that relationship, that really it's treasuring Jesus above all and trusting him no matter what. If we don't see that breakthrough, our hearts can stay in that tension of still crying out and yet we're answered in the treasure of Jesus in the present. Yeah. And so I just, all of those things are hitting me as we're talking about it. I think too, though, the Lord's given us a really sweet gift. When we say urgency and breakthrough, I don't know that we mean what some people listening might think we mean. I was talking to a friend the other day that I met who's similar to me from a Pentecostal background. And we were laughing with one another, remembering Pentecostal prayer meetings. Because Pente Pentecostal prayer meetings, man, you guys can't fully appreciate. <laughs> it, they were, I mean, frothy, stirred up, zeal with urgency to make something happen now right. of the Spirit. That person's got to feel the Spirit. That person's got to pray in tongues. That person's got to get healed. It's like that thing where you just want to make it happen. So you're praying for something to happen in the immediate. So your urgency is related to what you want to happen. And breakthrough equals some very small-scale expressions of Holy Spirit movement right now. And that's the culture. And you, you've seen that culture in prayer meetings, you know, across America. You walk in, and there's an urgency for breakthrough now. I feel like if we all stand up right now, I feel like if we all shout, I feel like if we all kneel, I feel like if we all chop, right now something will happen and everyone's like i'm gonna chop because i want something to happen now when we say urgency for breakthrough we mean something very different actually mm -hmm. 
when we say urgency for breakthrough, we're thinking, God, you promised a breakthrough in your word by which Jerusalem will be a praise on the earth. Your son will be adored. Your church will be unified. Your church will express your beauty in maturity, that your righteousness would be established, that oppression would be broken, that the unworthy would be cast down, that there'd be a billion soul harvest, that there'd be a global... I mean, we have this... We don't even think about it. We have this list of 20 very specific definitions of biblical breakthrough on a global scale. And our urgency is, ah, it's not okay until those things happen. We want the beginnings, the the unfolding, and the wheels to turn towards that end now. We're not wanting to wait 10 years for that to begin. We want the beginnings of that unfolding now so we feel the ache of longing for Jesus to come and all the breakthrough that comes with it. We feel urgent that that happened today. And so it's a it's an interesting immediacy with long-term yes. perspective in how we pray. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you guys are both talking, and this won't even make sense to the listeners unless they go back and hear, Dana, what you're sharing Dave, also with what you're saying, I mean, you guys are describing the bridal paradigm. Mm -hmm. You're describing the fruit of it. You're describing the fruit of the bridal paradigm being the sustaining power in the place of intercession, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what Isaiah 62, 6 says, that there will be set watchmen on the wall. Verse 5 says, he says, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice Mm -hmm. over you. And the, the the bridal template, the bridal paradigm brings these elements of intimacy, longing, and desire with urgency. I want the bridegroom to come. And in the Jewish tradition, I think that gives us one of the clearest uh, kind of parabolic understandings of this tension of intimacy with urgency unto that day. It's all unto the wedding day. And if it's a wedding day, then my heart won't faint in the process because I know that he is coming. And he, meaning he in the immediate sense, it's the breakthrough of the promise, but it's also him, Jesus, he's really coming back. And it, and it, it is the fuel that sustains me in intimacy and love through various seasons. The bride, the betrothed one that's waiting for the bridegroom to come will endure all things because her heart is so knit to the bridegroom and she is confident that he will come and that he will return right. and answer. Right. And we have to have that undergirding our intercession. And we need prophetic revelation of that. It doesn't just happen. Like, we've got to open the word and get revelation on our hearts of that bridal under, understanding. So I'm just hearing that as you guys are sharing. Oh, I love it. And I want to close by saying I love my Pentecostal roots. In other words, while there's been a long-term marathon ache that's been set into me by grace as an intercessor that helps me to stay with this long-term because I'm, because I'm, I'm seeing where it has to go, and I'm longing for it to go there, and I won't be satisfied until it does. That fuels my intercession. But at the same time, I still love the that, because it's what others think of when we say prophetic and intercession. What they think of is the Holy Spirit speaks, and we all chop, and people get healed. And, and it was a prophetic moment. And, and, and as a, you know, my Pentecostal roots, I don't mind that so much, actually. I like that. I like when we feel something from the Lord, we act on it in faith to respond to what we think the Lord's initiating. We, we pray, we go with it, somebody gets healed, somebody gets saved. There's a now faith. I love now faith. I love it, and I, I think we need more of it. So I don't ever want to communicate in a way that denigrates that. I want to 
actually maximize that in our school. I want to go farther in now faith as it relates to what the Lord can do in our midst today. But I, I just don't want to take that and make that the it that we're contending for. We're contending in now faith for the break, the small, the very small breakthroughs that we love and cherish and thank the Lord for. But they are small breakthroughs that are moving us towards a, a consummation and an ultimacy in the Lord that we all long for. So let me just interject. And I, I think, I mean, we together as friends constantly have gratitude for little breakthroughs, though we have that ultimate and that consummation, you know, fullness. It's like when our kids have like a new tenderness of heart or maybe a brand new revelation of he's a bridegroom whatever you know or 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 where it's all headed and or when we're, our hearts are tender towards one another all of that are little breakthroughs of that ultimate fullness and with gratitude and even encouragement in that place of intercession we're strengthened to for that perseverance to the ultimate but it really is small breakthroughs that we see and rejoice over today I love this. I love talking about our life together in our assignment. I love that we get to do what we do together. We, and again, if we started naming names, just the amazing people that we get to do this with, what a joy. What a joy. Again, I really do. I pray that every pastor I know, every evangelist I know, every teacher I know, every businessman I know, that the Holy Spirit would move in their assignment with a love and affection for what they do and who they get to do it with that matches ours. I just love what we get to do. Well, thank you guys for, for this conversation today. Man, this one got, that ball got rolling. Like We talked about something that's dear to our hearts, and it was hard to stop the train, but uh, I'm, I'm glad we didn't. This was a really sweet conversation. Thank you, Dana. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Isaac. Mm -hmm. We will see you next time. We're going to talk about contending for the promises of God. I, I can't wait. So thank you, everybody. Bless you. Make sure you click uh, subscribe. Make sure you, you stay, stay with us, and every time... We, uh, we release a new episode, which is weekly. You'll get a notification. You'll track with us. And we just, we like going somewhere with you. So thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IHOPKC Family Connect podcast. Consider subscribing if you haven't. And follow us on social media for other content from IHOPKC.